As we gathered here this evening to hear the gospel of our salvation, I'd just like to press upon you. Um, I'm pressing upon myself as well to remind us all that when the Lord saves his people, it's often just one detail (laughs) he brings out from his word. I don't know what this man called himself before he heard that God saves his people on purpose. I don't know if he thought of himself as a Protestant, but it was that one word, purpose. Or another man who was, I understand he was a Roman Catholic priest, and he heard that the Lord was sacrificed once for sin. The Lord saved him. Or even to hear, it is finished. (laughs) Or we're complete in him. It's these words that you hear God's people testifying that the Lord blessed with his sovereign power to save his people. They don't recall an outline. <laughs> they don't recall, man, that was some really great, eloquent preaching. They recall his word. And I pray that as you're listening to the message from his word, that he'll be pleased to just take a portion of it and bless it to the comfort of his people or indeed the salvation of his people, someone who's not heard before. Now, it's uh, been about a month since we've last looked at the book of Numbers. We spent our last time there in a summary view of it. I'd like to once again give you a summary of the book. I won't be repeating what I said last time. It'll be a little bit different. To give you more of a a narrative, a a summary of the book of Numbers. Uh, Before we look at three things that I want to show you in the first chapter. And those three things I'll revisit in a moment. But they are uh, the word of God's prophet, the wilderness of God's proving, and lastly, the warfare of God's people. Now, the book of Numbers is called in the Hebrew tradition, uh, Bad Midbar, which means in the wilderness. You've heard that the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, Uh, the book of Numbers tells that story. Numbers is an account of Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land that the Lord promised to Abraham. So why does it take 40 years? When the people of Israel get about halfway to the promised land, Moses sends 12 spies into the land before they take it. So 10 of those spies come back in a panic claiming that the Canaanites and the other people there, uh, it's too list to list all the knights, if you know what I mean, (laughs) claiming uh, that they were too powerful for Israel to overcome. Rather than believe what God had promised them, they slandered him. And believing that God could not accomplish their warfare, they said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And worse yet, they persuaded the people to follow them in their unbelief. That wicked thought that with God, not all things are possible. And in particular, that they would not be able to take the land that God promised them. Now Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who brought back a good report, believing with God all things are possible, they declared, let us go up at once 
and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. They knew of a truth that God would accomplish their warfare. In fact, after 40 years wandering in the desert, they were the only men from their generation permitted to go into the promised land. And so the older generation, because of their unbelief, these adult men, because, of the, because they followed after the unbelieving spies, died in the wilderness. The Lord declared to them, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, save Caleb and Joshua. Now the pilgrimage between Mount Sinai and the land of Canaan was about 150 miles. I know this because I looked it up, and they told me how long it would take to get from, I mean, if that's to be true or not, I don't know. But there's a car, and a car takes you about uh, an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. It was 150 miles. And given the size of their group at the start, over 600,000 people, it could have taken them no more than four weeks, four weeks on foot to get to the promised land. But instead, it takes them 40 years. That's a remarkable amount of time. Indeed, a very long time to be living in the wilderness and tents. But let's remember why the Lord had them to wander for so long and the purpose of their journey. We read in Deuteronomy, The Lord thy God led, these, led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart. The book of Numbers can be divide up, divided up into five parts. The three different wilderness locations separated by the two journeys that join them all together. So the first part of the book, we find them in the wilderness. That is, we find Israel in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. Then in the second part, we see them journey towards a region called Paran. And many things happen there in the wilderness of Paran. Then in the fourth part of Numbers in, is Israel's journey to Moab. And then Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers ends with a large part of its portion recording their time in the wilderness of Moab across the River Jordan, just outside the Promised Land. So let's begin with the first part. Uh, and then this is just, just a long introduction, a long summary. We'll, we'll get to those three points I, I, I said at the outset. But I think it's good for us to have the whole book fixed in our mind. If you remember, Israel came here uh, right after their exodus from Egypt, that is to Mount Sinai. It's where the Lord made a covenant with Moses and the people. It's where they received the Ten Commandments, where they built the tabernacle. And they've been there for one full year. And we see here that the Lord has commanded them to take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. God's word tells us that he is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And so we read here, the Lord spake to Moses as to how they were to organize themselves in the camp, how that his presence would be in the tabernacle, and how the tribe of Levi and the priests would surround the tabernacle, then the rest of the tribes around them. 
And they are told that when the cloud of God's presence moves on, they are to pack up and journey with it. The Ark of the Covenant carried by the Levites is in front, then the tribe of Judah, and so on. This order was also a symbol of how God's holy presence leads and guides God's people. So we begin the second part of this book as they leave the Sinai wilderness and journey up to Paran. God's with them. Everything is organized. Everything is going, seemingly going to be great, but it's not great. After just three days of their journey, they start complaining about their hunger and thirst, and even Moses' brother Aaron and his sister Miriam speak against him in front of everyone. They question Moses' faithfulness for marrying an Ethiopian woman. And the Lord rebuked them all, saying of Moses that he was faithful. Now the third part, the wilderness of Paran, this is where Moses sent the twelve spies to spy out the promised land. Now two of the spies come back, encouraged in the Lord, saying, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Indeed, for if the Lord be for us, who can be against us? But the other ten spies are beyond discouraged. All they can see are the giants of the land, rather than our great God. They don't trust him. And rather than confess God is able, they look only to themselves and unbelievingly say, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And so they start a rebellion and try to appoint a new leader who will take them back to Egypt. And so because of their sin of unbelief, manifestly seen in their refusing to go to the promised land, indeed to take the land, the apostle writes of them, With whom was he grieved forty years? Was he not with them that had was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? So we see, and this is a conclusion that the Apostle Paul makes in the book of Hebrews, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. God gives these reprobates what they want. God tells them plainly that the generation of the unbelieving spies, indeed those that followed in their unbelief, would wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness and only their children would get to enter the promised land. It serves as a reminder of what the Holy Spirit tells us by his servant, the Apostle Paul, that among the over 600,000 people that made up Israel at that time, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. The Lord declares, Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, save Caleb and Joshua. And so this leg of their journey in the wilderness of Paran, that of spying on the land, is a cautionary account of the peril of unbelief. But it gets worse, far worse. In the fourth part of Numbers, as they journey to Moab, Moses suffers the consequences of his own unbelief 
and unfaithfulness to the Lord's word. The Lord said to Moses, Speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. How glorious would have that been? (laughs) But the Lord rebukes Moses for robbing him of his glory, rebukes him for not sanctifying him before the people. Rather than do all that the Lord commanded, Moses did not speak to the rock, but rather smote the rock twice. And so we hear the Lord declaring to Moses, Because ye believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the promised land which I have given them. Now you would think that the people of God would have learned by now to stop their murmuring, to stop speaking against the Lord, but no. Sadly, this is the picture of what we are all like by nature. That old man in us, in all of us, really murmuring children that speak against God, our Father. And this time, the Lord sends fiery serpents among the people. Now, what makes all this backbiting, murmuring, and speaking against the Lord compoundedly worse is that through every step of their journey, their faithful Lord and God has been providing for them. He grants forgiveness. He provides them food, water, and this remarkable provision called manna, which uh, translated basically means, what's that? (laughs) But in spite of this, they continue to murmur and speak against the Lord and say they wish they had died in Egypt. They said, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we had died in this wilderness? If you or I were dealing with such a sorry group of people, we would have given up on them. But praise the Lord, (laughs) he's not like us. For he is rich in mercy. We see here the sure and ordered everlasting covenant of his love and grace in Christ for the account of the book of Numbers. And especially in the last and final part of this account. And it's remarkable just how wickedly Israel had dealt with and treated our faithful Lord. So in the last part we see Israel has just arrived in Moab and the king of Moab, uh, Balak, Balak, is not a little disturbed, but rather he is out of his mind disturbed by the mass of over 600,000 people journeying through his land. And so what does Balak, the king of Moab, do? He hires a pagan sorcerer named Balaam, who had a reputation for being able to bring both curses and blessings on on certain people, but for a price. A sorcerer for hire, if you will. Uh, The King James calls it a soothsayer. And there are three different times Balaam attempts to curse Israel. But each time, he finds he can only utter blessing. Moses records in the book of Numbers that Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam. And he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies. And behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. The most remarkable of the blessings is the last. 
in which Balaam prophesies that out of Israel will arise a victorious king. Beloved, this king is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations through his seed. We read in Numbers chapter 23, verse 21, and you can turn there with me. Numbers chapter 23, verse 21. God's word declares, and this is a shadow of the substance, the reality of God's people in Christ. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord, his God, is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Beloved, how marvelous a blessing is this, to behold our Redeemer, the one who has accomplished our warfare, and hear him with the ears of faith shout among his people for all eternity regarding their salvation. It is finished. And so the wandering journey in the wilderness that the book of Numbers recounts ends here in Moab. Now, before they can go into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, at the end of their journey, they perform another census, just like they did at the start, leaving behind the old generation and Moses. However, before they depart into the promised land, Moses leaves them his last words, the words which he spake unto all Israel on this side, Jordan, in the wilderness, which we have recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, that's just a summary review of the book. Now, turn with me to chapter, um, chapter 1, the first chapter of Numbers, and we'll look there at a few particulars. We'll just read the first three verses. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of, of Sinai, in the tabernacle of the congregation, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel, after their families, by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male by their poles, from twenty years old and upward, all that are able to go to forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Now that the the three particulars I'd like to look at this evening are the word of God's prophet, the wilderness of God's proving, and lastly the warfare of God's people. Once again, as I said at the outset, I shall endeavor to show you in these first three verses three particulars. The word of God's prophet, the wilderness of God's proving, and lastly, the warfare of God's people. In the first part there we read, The Lord spake unto Moses. 
to look at this portion under our first heading, the word of God's prophet. In the very first verse, we read, The Lord spake. Beloved, never question it for a moment. What you have in your hands is the perfect, infallible, unerring word of God. Notice who speaks unto Moses, not men, but the Lord. Beloved, we must not entertain for a moment the thought of bringing this blessed book into our hands and not think of it at once as God's perfect word, that it is all divine and therefore perfect, irrespective of all the attacks of infidels and imbeciles, for that matter. The believer rests in Christ, knowing not only that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, but further that all Scripture gives testimony of Christ. And so God's people are graciously made to know that the Scriptures, all of them, are they which testify of our blessed Lord and Savior. Indeed, we should expect to see much of Christ in the book of Numbers. How so? We have the Lord's very own words on the matter. Do you remember what he said to the unbelieving Pharisees? He declares, Had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Friend, make sure you know this, that the word of God's prophet is of the Lord. Let's move on to our second heading, The Wilderness of God's Proving. Now, in the very first part of Numbers, in the first chapter, we find God's people, Israel, in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. In the wilderness. The prophet Isaiah, writing of God's people in Christ, says of them, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. Indeed, the wilderness is a place, having been redeemed out of Egypt, that the people of God may rest in and continue, and in the continued blessing of being saved. Let me see if I can put that another way. It's a mystery for me, but nevertheless it is true. The Lord has saved his people, is saving his people, and one glorious day shall save his people by the merit of his sin atoning blood and the merit of his perfect righteousness. Beloved, we wait on the Lord, for he shall save us. Now, the purpose of the wilderness, and I speak regarding both the church of the Old Testament and the New, that one church, Jew and Gentile, God's elect. What's the purpose of this wilderness? It can be summed up with one word, proof. Proof. For just as the psalmist says of his sojourn in the wilderness of this world, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. So too, all of God's people can join together with their brother and pray with him. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. For thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. Of course, this speaks of the believer in Christ. So why must his people journey in the wilderness of this fallen world? The Lord tells us plainly why it is so. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 2. And look there with me in verse 8. 
In the latter part, we hear the answer to that very question. I inversed my, my reference. Chapter 8, verse 2. Beginning in verse 2, the Word of God declares, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. So why must his people journey in the wilderness of this fallen world? The Lord tells us plainly, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart. Beloved, God has purposed by this experience, that of journeying in this wilderness of this fallen world, to prove his church. Beloved, it is to reveal what was in thine heart. Now, this proving does not produce anything. It only reveals whom he put there, that we might be truly furnished for our eternal inheritance in the heavenly Canaan above. Now, the history of Israel, we've just retraced in the book of Numbers. It shows us just how unfit the people were for an immediate entrance into the promised land. And so it is with ourselves, spiritual Israel. When we come out of the Egypt of this world, we are made meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Though we are still carnal, full of the failings and evil tempers, even as those who have been all their lifetime subject to bondage and sold under sin. What else then could our Heavenly Father do with us than bring us apart to sanctify us into the wilderness where He can train us and truly furnish us and purify unto Him for unto himself a peculiar people. The book of Numbers, indeed all scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Beloved, when we are slow to respond to this, the purpose design, indeed, discipline of this wilderness journey on his part, he will keep us all the longer in the wilderness and will make our experience of chastening all the more painful and sharper. We may surmise from the sacred record that Israel might have been brought into Canaan less than two years after the exodus from Egypt, and that all things were prepared by God for that speedy, happy conclusion on their being proved. But because of unbelief, the people made it manifest that they were utterly unfit for the final blessing. Therefore, their term of wandering was lengthened up to 40 years. How comparable are the circumstances under which that unwelcome sentence of continued exile was passed upon them? How well does their account deserve to be contemplated by the believing sinner who all too easily allows himself to complain because his earthly life is full of prolonged drudgery and full of painful disappointment. Such a believer feels none of Paul's conflicting desire, whether to depart to be with Christ, which is far better, 
or to choose a little while longer in the flesh for the good of others. God's people are weary, very weary of the wilderness, and long to fly away to be with the Lord. Now consider this. A believer's impatience and selfishness prove how much he still needs the discipline which is chastening him, him, the chastening of the Lord, which seems to them so bothersome and needlessly excessive. When a Christian is ready for glory, God takes him to glory. But he loves his children too well to translate their spirits to a realm for which they are not prepared. Think upon it, beloved, how that in eternity the Lord saved you. There was no if about your salvation. But the Lord would have you in time to hear and know by divine revelation a message so much clearer and better then he shall save you. But ever so blessedly has made it known to you that he has saved you. Even so, we look forward to that day when he shall save his people. When he shall save, say to his heavenly Father, Behold, I and the children whom thou hast given me. O God. The believer who would attain to that preparation speedily must sincerely submit his will to God's will. He must yield, up, yield himself up to God's sanctifying, humbling discipline and must check every hurried word, every hurried way of discontent by such a word as we heard from Job just a moment ago. He knoweth the way that I take when he hath tried me. I shall come forth as gold. Now notice in the third verse of Numbers chapter 1. And we'll come to the final heading, which we proposed to navigate this portion at the beginning. The warfare of God's people. In verse 3, we read, From twenty years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. All that are able to go forth to war. Beloved, though we in this wilderness go forth to war, never forget it. Our faithful God and Redeemer has already gone to war for us. What does that mean? Simply this, to know that the victory is already won. To hear the shout of our King, it is finished. That indeed our salvation is already accomplished. In the words that our Lord moved the Apostle to write, he sets forth that we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation ready to be revealed by a Savior who has already saved us, beloved. Now, we do indeed go to war, but it is not by looking to our enemy, nor looking to ourselves, Never did any of God's people look to their own strength or their own power, but only and ever look to him through whom we can do all things. Indeed, beloved, we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. 
Is that not where the ten spies erred? Friend, don't look where they looked. Look to where the Lord's people look. They look to Him. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. There, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I'd like to say a few particulars upon this accomplished warfare. Speaking of God's elect, both among the Jews and the Gentiles, indeed the eternal church of God, they are mentioned here as spoken of in this uh, figure, uh, this name, Jerusalem. And we read that her warfare is accomplished. The warfare of Christ's church is accomplished. Beloved, Christ has accomplished our warfare with the law of God. The quickened soul has a terrible warfare with the law of God. For the law of God is revealed to the believer's conscience, armed with a flaming, glittering sword, and that of the strictest holiness. And it demands the obedience of his heart and life. And though the quickened soul tries to meet its requirements... He is able to see all his efforts are in vain. For he knows the law of God requires a perfect obedience. The law lifts up its unbending sword to slay him. It casts curse at him. This is a terrible warfare in every quickened conscience. But when the believing sinner runs to Christ and faints into his arms, he learns at that very moment that his warfare has been accomplished, that his salvation was decreed in eternity, accomplished in time, and made known to him by divine revelation. Beloved, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. In Christ, the demands of the law are satisfied, for he was made under the law, bearing its curses, for he was made a curse for us. The glittering sword of God's justice pierced his side, being the substitute of his people. Friend, do you know what it is to have this warfare accomplished? It is to hear not only have all your sins been forgiven, washed in the blood of the Lamb, but further, you are complete in him. For our Heavenly Father hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Not only is our warfare accomplished with the law of God, but further with the devil. Beloved, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but rather quickened souls often have an awful warfare with Satan. For Satan fights against the quickened in two ways. First, By stirring up his corrupt nature, Satan makes his lusts to flame and burn within him in a fearful manner. And second, by accusing him. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. 
and Satan accuses the quickened sinner in his conscience to try and drive him away from Christ or to drive him to despair and have him give up all hope of salvation. Beloved, our enemy, the devil, says to us, Thou art a vile, filthy wretch that is not fit for such a holy and pure Savior. See what raging lusts are in thy heart. Thou wilt never be saved. But when the poor sinner runs into Christ, whether it be the first time or fresh, <laughs> he finds rest there. His warfare is then accomplished. He sees all the accusations that Satan raised answered in the blood of the Lamb. Indeed, hearing that by it there is therefore now no condemnation. Beloved by Christ, our warfare is accomplished with the law of God. Our warfare is accomplished with Satan. And lastly, beloved, our warfare is accomplished with sin. The quickened soul has a terrible warfare with his corruptions. His heart appears just full of raging lusts, all tearing him to pieces. He is driven here and there. But when he comes to Christ, this warfare is accomplished. Indeed, in one sense, the battle is not over, but just begun. But now victory is sure. As we read in the first chapter of Numbers, indeed, in Christ, we are able to go forth to war, knowing that the victory is sure. For God in us, beloved, greater is he that is for him than all that can be against him. For God before us, if God before us, beloved, who can be against us? The Spirit of God is now within the believer. He is within the believing sinner. He will abide with him forever. The Spirit now reigns in him. Christ now fights for him, covers his head in the day of battle, carries him on his shoulder. He is as sure to overcome as if he were ahead in glory. He says to him, Fear not, thou worm Jacob. Fear not, thou worm Jacob. I'm only reading God's word to worms. <laughs> Every worm here. Every worm that's a mixture of belief and doubt. Fear not, Thou worm Jacob, err not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. That word, our word, indeed our Lord, never leave thee, reaches through the darkest hours of temptation, the deepest waters of affliction, the hottest fires of persecution. It reaches unto death, through death and the grave, into glory, into the very glory of his presence in eternity. Amen.